1: Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd wherever podcasts are available. What's this? Another episode of Stories to Keep You Up at Night? I remain your humble host, Marco Palmieri, and here with me is my pal, Michael Coulter. Thanks for having me on today, Marco. I'm glad to be here with you co-hosting. I'm glad you're here too, Michael, especially to talk about Lovecraft. Now, Lovecraft is a controversial figure these days. There are definitely some problematic aspects to you know, his real life positions, um, a lot of his writing, but what's interesting about Lovecraft from today's context is how so many writers became so taken with the mythology he created that they continue to imagine new stories set in or inspired by his world of ancient eldritch abominations intruding on our world.
0: Well, my relation to Lovecraft actually came from the novel and TV show Lovecraft Country, which I really enjoyed.
1: I enjoyed Lovecraft Country, too. I thought it was a really, really interesting production and a really, really interesting interpretation of, of that mythology. This episode's story Concerns the lives, deaths, and unsavory endeavors of the Calipash family, including the curious birth and upbringing of the future Lord Calipash and his sister. Please enjoy The Infernal History of the Ivory Bridge
0: Twins, Part 1, written by Molly Tanzer and narrated by Anna Clemens.
2: Concerning the life and death of St. John Fitzroy, Lord Calipash, the suffering of the Lady Calipash, the unsavoury endeavours of Lord Calipash's cousin, Mr. Villaine, as well as an account of the curious circumstances surrounding the birth of the future Lord Calipash and his twin sister. In the county of Devonshire, in the parish of Ivybridge, stood the ancestral home of the Lords Calipash. Calipash Manor was large, built sturdily of the local limestone, and had stood for many years without fire or other catastrophe marring its expanse. No one could impugn the size and antiquity of the house, yet often one or another of those among Lord Calipash's acquaintance might be heard to comment that the manor had a rather rambling, hodgepodge look to it, and this could not be easily refuted without the peril of speaking a falsehood. The reason for this was that the Lord's Calipash had always been the very essence of English patriotism, and rather than ever tearing down any part of the house and building anew, each Lord Calipash had chosen to make additions and improvements to older structures. Thus, though the prospect was somewhat sprawling, it served as a pleasant enough reminder of the various styles of Devonian architecture, and became something of a local attraction. St. John Fitzroy, Lord Calipash, was a handsome man, tall, fair haired, and blue eyed. He had been bred up as any gentleman of rank and fortune might be, and therefore the manner of his death was more singular than any aspect of his life. Now, given that this is, indeed, an infernal history, the sad circumstances surrounding this good man's unexpected and early demise demand attention by the author and they are inextricably linked with the Lord Calipash's cousin, a young scholar called Mr. Villaine, who will figure more prominently in this narrative than his nobler relation. Mr. Villaine came to stay at Calapash Manor during the Seven Years' War in order to prevent his being conscripted into the French army. Though indifference had previously characterised the relationship between Lord Calipash and Mr. Vilaine, Mr. Villain belonging to a significantly lower branch of the family tree. When Mr. Villain wrote to Lord Calipash to beg sanctuary, the good Lord would not deny his own flesh and blood. This was not to say, however, that Lord Calipash was above subtly encouraging his own flesh and blood to make his stay a short one, and, to that end, He gave Mr. Verlaine the tower-bedroom that had been built by one of the more eccentric lords some generations prior to our tale, who so enjoyed pretending to be the Lady Jane Grey that he had the edifice constructed so his wife could dress up as member of the Privy Council and keep him locked up there for as long as nine days at a stretch. But that was not the reason Lord Calipash bade his cousin reside there. The tower was a draughty place, and given to damp, and thus seemed certain of securing Mr. Villain's speedy departure. As it turns out, however, the two men were so unlike one another that what Lord Calipash thought was an insulting situation, Mr. Villain found entirely salubrious, and so, happily, out of a case of simple misunderstanding, grew an affection, founded on deepest admiration for Mr. Villain's part, and, for Lord Callipash's, ENJOYMENT OF TOADYING All the long years of the international conflict, Mr. Villaine remained at Calipash Manor, and with the passing of each and every day, he came more into the confidence of Lord Calipash, until it was not an uncommon occurrence to hear members of Lord Calipash's circle using words like inseparable to describe their relationship. Then, only six months before the signing of the Treaty of Paris, the possibility of continued fellowship between Lord Calipash and Mr. Villain was quite suddenly extinguished. for Mr. Fellingworth moved into the neighbourhood with his family, among them his daughter of fifteen years, Miss Alice Fellingworth. Dark of hair and eye, but pale of cheek, her beauty did not go long unnoticed by the local swains. She had many suitors and many offers.' but from among a nosegay of sparks she chose as her favourite blossom the Lord Calipash. Mr. Villain had also been among Miss Fellingworth's admirers, and her decision wounded him. Not so much that he refused to come to the wedding, he was very fond of cake, but certainly enough that all the love Mr. Vilaine had felt for Lord Calipash was instantly converted, as if by alchemy, to pure hatred. In his dolor. Mr. Villain managed to convince himself that Miss Fellingworth's father had pressured her to accept Lord Calipash's offer for the sake of his rank and income against her true inclinations. That had she been allowed to pick her heart's choice, she certainly would have accepted Mr. Villain's suit rather than his cousin's. Such notions occupied Mr. Villain's thoughts whenever he saw the happy couple together and every day his mind became more and more inhospitable to any pleasure he might have otherwise felt on account of his friend's newfound felicity. A reader of this history might well wonder why Mr. Villain did not quit Calipash Manor, given that his situation, previously so agreeable, he now found intolerable. Mr. Villain was, however, loath to leave England he had received a letter from his sister informing him that during his absence his modest home had been commandeered by the army, and thus his furniture was in want of replacing, his lands trampled without hope of harvest, his stores pilfered, and, perhaps worst of all, his wretched sister was with child by an Austrian soldier who had, it seemed, lied about his interest in playing the role of father beyond the few minutes required to grant him that status. It seemed prudent to Mr. Villain to keep apart from such appalling circumstances for as long as possible. Then, one evening from the window of his tower bedroom, Mr. Villain saw Lord Calipash partaking of certain marital pleasures with the new Lady Calipash against a tree in one of the gardens. Nauseated, Mr. Villain called for his servant and announced his determination to secretly leave Calipash Manor once and for all early the following morning. While the servant packed his bags and trunks, Mr. Villain penned a letter explaining his hasty departure to Lord Calipash and left it, along with a token of remembrance, in Lord Calipash's study. Quite early the next morning, just as he was securing his cravat, Mr. Villain was treated to the unexpected but tantalizing sight of Lady Calipash in Disabil. She was beside herself with grief, but eventually Mr. Villain, entirely sympathetic and eager to understand the source of her woe, coaxed the story from her fevered mind. I woke early, quite cold, gibbered Lady Calipash. Lord Calipash had never come to bed,
3: though he promised me when I went up that he should follow me after settling a few accounts. When I discovered him absent, I rose and sought him in his study, only to find him dead. Oh, it was too terrible. His eyes were open wide and round and staring. At first I thought it looked very much like he had been badly frightened, but then I thought he had almost a look of of ecstasy about him.
2: I believe. Here, the Lady Calipash faltered, and it took some minutes for Mr. Villain to get the rest of the story from her, for her agitated state required his fetching smelling salts from out of his valise. Eventually, she calmed enough to relate the following. I believe he might have done himself the injury that took him from me, she sobbed.
3: His wrists were slit and next to him lay his letter-opener. He, he had used his own blood to scrawl a message on the skirting boards. Oh, Mr. Villain!
2: What did the message say? asked Mr. Villain. It
3: said, He is calling, he is calling, I
2: hear him, she said, and then she hesitated. What is it, Lady Calipash? "'asked Mr. Villain. "'I cannot see its importance, "'but he had this in his other hand,' said she, "'and handed to Mr. Villain "'a small object wrapped in a handkerchief. "'He took it from her "'and saw that it was an odd bit of ivory "'wrought to look like a lad's head "'crowned with laurel. "'Mr. Villain put it in his pocket "'and smiled at the Lady Calipash. Likely it has nothing to do with your husband's tragic end, he said gently. I purchased this whilst in Greece, and the late Lord Calipash had often admired it. I gave it to him as a parting gift, for I had meant to withdraw from Calipash Manor this very morning. Oh, but you mustn't, begged Lady Calipash. Not
3: now, not after. Lord Calipash would wish you to be here. You mustn't go just now, please, for my
2: sake. Mr. Villain would have been happy to remain on those terms had the Lady Callipash finished speaking, but alas, there was one piece of information she had yet to relate. And for our child's sake as well, she concluded. While the Lord Calipash's final message was being scrubbed from the skirting boards and his death was being declared an accident by the constable in order that the departed Lord might be buried in the churchyard, Mr. Villain violently interrogated Lady Calipash's serving maid. The story was true. The lady was indeed expecting, and this intelligence displeased Mr. Villain so immensely But even as he made himself pleasant and helpful with the hope that he might eventually win the Lady Calipash's affections, he sought to find a method of ridding her of her unborn child. To Mr. Villain's mind, Lady Calipash could not but fall in love with her loyal confidant, believing as he did that she had always secretly admired him. But Mr. Villain knew that should she bear the late Lord Calipash's son, the estate would one day be entirely lost to him. Thus he dosed the lady with recipes born of his own researches, for while Mr. Vilaine's current profession was that of scholar, in his youth he had pursued lines of study related to all manner of black magics and sorceries. For many years he had put aside his wicked thaumaturgy, being too happy in the company of Lord Calipash to travel those paths that demand solitude and gloom and suffering. But newly motivated, he returned to his former interests with a desperate passion. Like the wife of Bath, Mr. Vilaine knew all manner of remedies for love's mischances, and he put wicked spells on the decoctions and tisans that he prepared to help his cause. Yet, despite Mr. Vilaine's skill with infusion and incantation, Lady Calipash grew heavy with child. indeed, she had such a healthy maternal glow about her that the doctor exclaimed that for one so young to be brought to childbed she was certain of a healthy accouchement. Mr. Villain, as canny and adept at lying as other arts, appeared to be thrilled by his lady's prospects and was every day by her side. Though privately discouraged by her salutary condition, he was cheered by all manner of odd portents that he observed as her lying-in drew ever closer. First, a murder of large, evil-looking ravens took up residence upon the roof of Calipash Manor, cackling and cawing day and night. And then, the ivy growing on Calipash Manor's aged walls turned from green to scarlet, a circumstance no naturalist in the area could satisfactorily explain. Though the Lady Calipash's delivery was expected in midwinter, a she-goat was found to be unexpectedly in the same delicate condition as her mistress, and gave birth to a two-headed kid that was promptly beaten to death and buried far from the manor. Not long after that unhappy parturition, which had disturbed the residents of Calipash Manor so greatly that the news was kept from Lady Calipash for fear of doing her or her unborn child a mischief, The lady began to feel the pangs of her own travail. At the very stroke of midnight, on the night of the dark of the moon, during a lightning storm that was as out of season as the she-goat's unusual kid, the Lady Calipash was happy to give birth to a healthy baby boy, the future Lord Calipash, and as surprised as the midwife when a second child followed, an equally plump and squalling girl. They were so alike that Lady Calipash named them Basil and Rosemary, and then promptly gave them over to the wet nurse to be washed and fed. The wet nurse was a stout woman from the village, good-natured and well-intentioned, but a sounder sleeper than was wanted in that house. Though an infant's wail would rouse her in an instant, footfalls masked by thunder were too subtle for her country-bred ear, and thus she did not observe the solitary figure that stole silently into the nursery in the wee hours of that morning for only a few moments did the individual linger, knowing well how restive infants can be in their first hours of life. By the eldritch glow of a lightning strike, Mr. Villain uncorked a vial containing the blood of the two-headed kid now buried, and he smeared upon both of those rosy foreheads an unholy mark, which, before the next burst of thunder, sank, without a trace, into their soft and delicate skin. a brief account of the infancy, childhood, education and adolescence of Basil Vincent, the future Lord Calipash, and his sister, Rosemary, as well as a discussion of the effect that reputation has on the prospect of obtaining satisfactory friends and lovers. While the author cannot offer an opinion as to whether any person deserves to suffer during his or her lifetime, the author will say, with utter certainty, that Lady Calapash endured more on account of her twins than any good woman should expect when she finds herself in the happy condition of motherhood. Their easy birth and her quick recovery were the end of Lady Calapash's maternal bliss, for not long after she could sit up and cradle her infant son in her arms, she was informed that a new wet nurse must be hired as the old had quit the morning after the birth. Lady Calipash was never told of the reason for the nurse's hasty departure, only that for a few days her newborns had been nourished with goat's milk, there being no suitable women in the neighbourhood to feed the hungry young lord and his equally rapacious sister. The truth of the matter was that little Rosemary had bitten off the wet nurse's nipple not an hour after witnessing her first sunrise. When the poor woman ran out of the nursery, clutching her bloody breast and screaming the rest of the servants did not much credit her account of the injury. When it was discovered that the newborn was possessed of a set of thin, needle-sharp teeth behind her innocent mouth, they would have drowned the girl in the well, if not for Mr. Villaine, who scolded them for peasant superstition and told them to feed the babes on the milk of the nanny-goat who had borne the two-headed kid until such a time when a new wet-nurse could be hired. That the wet-nurse's nipple was never found, became a source of ominous legend in the household, theories swapped from servant to servant, until Mr. Villain heard two chambermaids chattering and beat them both dreadfully in order that they might serve as an example of the consequences of idle gossip. This incident was only the first of its kind, but alas, the chronicles of the sufferings of those living in or employed at Calipash Manor after the birth of the Infernal Twins as they were called by servant, tenant-farmer, villager, and gentle person alike, well out of the hearing of either Lady Calipash or Mr. Valaine, of course, could comprise their own lengthy volume, and thus must be abridged for the author's current purposes. Sufficient must be the following collection of vignettes. From the first morning, Basil's cries sounded distinctly syllabic, and, when the vicar came to baptise the twins, he recognised the future Lord Calapash's wailing as an ancient language known only to the most disreputable sort of cultist. On the first dark of the moon after their birth, it was discovered that Rosemary had sprouted pale greenish webbing between her toes and fingers, as well as a set of pulsing gills just below her shell-pink earlobes. The next morning, the odd amphibious attributes were gone, but, to the distress of all... Their appearance seemed inexorably linked to the lunar cycle, for they appeared every month thereafter. Before either could speak a word, whenever a person stumbled or belched in their presence, one would laugh like a hyena, then the other, and then they would both fall silent, staring at the individual until he or she fled the room. One day, after Basil began to teethe, Rosemary was discovered to be missing. No one could find her for several hours, but eventually she reappeared in Basil's crib, apparently of her own volition. She was asleep and curled against her brother, who was contentedly gnawing on a bone that had been neatly and inexplicably removed from the lamb roast that was to have been Lady Callipash and Mr. Villain's supper that night. Yet such accounts are nothing. To the constant uproar that ensued when at last Basil and Rosemary began to walk and speak. These accomplishments, usually met with celebration in most houses, were heralded by the staff formally petitioning for the twins to be confined to certain areas of the house. But Mr. Villain, who had taken as much control of the business of Calipash Manor as he could, insisted that they be given as much freedom as they desired. This caused all manner of problems for the servants, but their complaints were met with cruel indifference by their new, if unofficial, master. It seemed to all that Mr. Villain actually delighted in making life difficult at Calipash Manor, and it may be safely assumed that part of his wicked tyranny stemmed from the unwillingness of Lady Calipash to put aside her mourning— and her being too constantly occupied with the unusual worries yielded by her motherhood to consider entering once again into a state of matrimony, despite his constant hints. For the twins, their newfound mobility was a source of constant joy. They were intelligent, inventive children, strong and active, and they managed to discover all manner of secret passageways and caches of treasure the Lady Calapash never knew of, and Mr. Villain had not imagined existing, even in his wildest fancies of sustaining this period of living as a gentleman. The siblings were often found in all manner of places at odd times. After their being put to bed, it was not unusual to discover one or both in the library, come midnight, claiming to be looking at the pictures in books that were only printed text. At Cockcrow, one might encounter them in the attic, drawing betentacled things on the floorboards with bits of charcoal, or less pleasant substances. Though they always secured the windows and triple-locked the nursery door come the dark of the moon, there was never a month that passed without Rosemary escaping to do what she would in the lakes and ponds that were part of the Calipash estate the only indication of her black frolics, bits of fish bones stuck between her teeth and pondweed braided through her midnight tresses. Still, it was often easy to forget the twins' wickedness between incidents, for they appeared frequently to be mere children at play. They would bring their mother natural oddities from the gardens, like a pretty stone or a perfect pine cone. And begged to be allowed to help feed the hunting hounds in the old Lord Calipash's now neglected kennels. All the same, even when they were sweet, it saddened Lady Calipash that Basil was from the first a dark and snivelling creature, and pretty Rosemary more likely to bite with her sharp teeth than return an affectionate kiss. Even on good days, they had to be prevented from entering the greenhouse or the kitchen. Their presence withered vegetation, and should one of them reach a hand into a cookie jar or steal a nibble of carrot or potato from the night's dinner, the remaining food would be found fouled with mould or ash upon their withdrawing. Given the universal truth that servants will gossip, when stories like these began to circulate throughout the neighbourhood, the once steady stream of visitors who had used to come to tour Calipash Manor decreased to a trickle and no tutor could be hired at any salary. Lady Calipash thanked God that Mr. Villain was there to conduct her children's education, but others were not so sure this was such a boon. Surely, had Lady Calipash realised that Mr. Villain viewed the lady's request as an opportunity to teach the twins not only Latin and Greek and English and geography and maths, but also his sorcerous arts, she might have heeded the voices of dissent, instead of dismissing their concerns as utter nonsense. Though often cursed for their vileness, Basil and Rosemary grew up quite happily in the company of Mr. Villain, their mother, and the servants, until they reached that age when children often begin to want for society. The spring after they celebrated their eighth birthday, they pleaded with their mother to be allowed to attend the May Day celebration in town. Against her better judgment, Lady Callipash begged the favour of her father, who was hosting the event. Against his better judgment, Mr. Fellingworth, who suffered perpetual and extraordinary dyspepsia as a result of worrying about his decidedly odd grandchildren, said the infernal twins might come if, and only if, they promised to behave themselves. After the incident the previous month, at the birthday party of a young country gentleman, where the twins were accused, to no resolution, of somehow having put dead frogs under the icing of the celebrant's towering cake, all were exceedingly cautious of allowing them to attend. This caution was, regrettably, more deserved than the invitation. Rosemary arrived at the event in a costume of her own making, that of the nymph, Flora. When Mr. Villain was interrogated as to his reasoning for such grotesque and ill-advised indulgence of childish fancy, he replied that she had earlier proved her understanding that Mayday had once been the Roman festival of Floralia, and it seemed a just reward for her attentiveness in the schoolroom. This bit of pagan heresy might have been overlooked by the other families— had not Mr. Villain later used the exact same justification for Basil's behaviour when the boy appeared at the celebration later on, clad only in a bit of blue cloth wrapped about his slender body, and then staged a reenactment for the children of Favonius's rape of Flora, Rosemary playing her part with unbridled enthusiasm. Mr. Villain could not account for the resentment of the other parents, nor the ban placed on the twins' presence at any future public observances, for, as he told Lady Calapash, the pantomime was accurate, and thus a rare educational moment during a day given over to otherwise pointless frivolity. Unfortunately for the twins, the result of that display was total social isolation, quite the opposite of their intention. From that day forward they saw no other children except for those of the staff, and the sense of rank instilled in the future Lord Calipash and his sister from an early age forbade them from playing with those humble urchins. Instead, they began to amuse themselves by trying out a few of the easier invocations taught to them by Mr. Villain, and in this manner summoned two fiends, One, an amorphous spirit, who would follow them about if it wasn't too windy a day. The other, an eel with a donkey's head, who lived, much to the gardener's distress, in the pond at the centre of the rose garden. Rosemary also successfully reanimated an incredibly nasty, incredibly ancient goose, when it died of choking on a strawberry. And the fell creature went about its former business of hissing at everyone and shitting everywhere, until the stable boy hacked off its head with the edge of a shovel and buried the remains at opposite ends of the estate. Unfortunately, these childish amusements could not long entertain the twins once they reached an age when they should, by all accounts, have been interfering with common girls, in Lord Calapash's case, or being courted by the local boys, in Rosemary's. For his part, Basil could not be bothered with the fairer sex, So absorbed was he in mastering languages more recherche than his indwelling Rilian or native English, or even the Latin, Hebrew and Assyrian he had mastered before his tenth birthday. Greek he never took to, that was Rosemary's province and the only foreign tongue she ever mastered. Truth be told, even had Basil been interested in women, his slouching posture Slight physique and petulant mouth would have likely ensured a series of speedy rejections. Contrariwise, Rosemary was a remarkably appealing creature, but there was something so frightening about her sharp-toothed smile and wicked gaze that no boy in the county could imagine comparing her lips to cherubs or her eyes to the night sky, and thus she, too, wanted for a lover. Nature will, however, induce the most enlightened of us to act according to our animal inclinations, and to that end, one night, just before their fifteenth birthday, Rosemary slipped into her brother's chambers after everyone else had gone to bed. She found Basil studying by himself. He did not look up at her to greet her, merely said, Photogonay, and ignored her. He had taught her a bit of his blood tongue, and their understanding of one another was so profound that she did not mind heeding the imperative, and knelt patiently at his feet for him to come to the end of his work. Before the candle had burned too low, he looked down at her with a fond frown. What? he asked. Brother, said she, with a serious expression, I have no wish to die an old maid. What have I to do with that? said he, wiping his eternally drippy nose on his sleeve. No one will do it to me if you won't. Basil considered this, realising she spoke not of matrimony, but of the act of love. Why should you want to? asked he at last. From everything I've read, intercourse yields nothing but trouble for those who engage in libidinous sport. Rosemary laughed. Would you like to come out with me two nights hence, on our birthday? It's the dark of the moon, said she. Basil straightened up and looked at her keenly. He nodded once, briskly, and that was enough for her. As she left him, she kissed his smooth cheek, and at her touch, he blushed for the first time in his life before progressing to the following scene of depravity that the author finds it her sad duty to relate, let several things be said about this history. First, this is as true and accurate account of the infernal twins of Ivybridge as anyone has yet attempted. Second, it is the duty of all historians to recount events with as much veracity as possible, never eliding over unpleasantness for propriety's sake. Had Suetonius shied away from his subject, we might never have known the true degeneracy of Caligula, and no one could argue that Suetonius's dedication to his work has allowed mankind to learn from the mistakes made by the Twelve Caesars. Thus, the author moves on to her third point, that her own humble chronicle of the Ivy Bridge twins is intended to be morally instructive rather than titillating. With this understanding, we must— Unfortunately, press on. The future Lord Calipash had never once attended his sister on her monthly jaunts, and so it must be said that, to his credit, it was curiosity rather than lust that comprised the bulk of his motivation that night. He dressed himself warmly, tiptoed to her door, and knocked very softly, only to find his sister standing beside him in a thin silk sheath, Though her door had not yet been unlocked. He looked her up and down. There was snow on the ground outside. What was she about, dressing in such a nymphian manner? But when she saw his alarm, given his own winter ensemble, she merely smiled. Basil was in that moment struck by how appealing were his sister's kitten teeth, how her ebon tresses looked as soft as raven down in the guttering candlelight. He swallowed nervously. Holding a single slender finger to her lips, with gestures, Rosemary bid him follow her, and they made their way down the hallway without a light. She knew the way, and her moist palm gripped his dry one as they slipped downstairs, out the servant's door, and into the cold midwinter night. Rosemary led her brother to one of the gardens, the pleasure garden full of little private grottos, and there— against a tree already familiar with love's pleasures, she kissed him on the mouth. It was a clumsy kiss. The twins had been well tutored by the Greeks and Romans in the theory, but not the practice of love, and theory can take one only so far. To their observer, for indeed they were observed, it seemed that both possessed an overabundance of carnal knowledge, and thus it was a longer encounter than most young people's inaugural attempts at amatory relations. Rosemary was eager, and Basil shy, though when he kissed her neck and encountered her delicate sea-green gill pulsating against her ivory skin, gasping for something more substantial than air, he felt himself completely inflamed and pressed himself into the webbed hand that fumbled with his breeches' buttons in the gloaming the twins, thought themselves invisible, that the location which they chose to celebrate their induction into Hyman's temple was completely obscure, and thus they were too completely occupied with their personal concerns to notice something very interesting, that Calipash Manor was not completely dark, even at that early hour of the morning. A light shone dimly from the tower bedroom where a lone figure, wracked with anger and jealousy and hatred, watched the twins from the same window where he had observed two other individuals fornicate, perhaps somewhat less wantonly, almost sixteen years earlier.
1: Well, that's a creepy beginning, but we're going to have to leave it there for now because the story is so long, it needs two episodes to tell. So join us for our next episode when we'll present part two. And if you're already creeped out, please give us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, pleasant nightmares.
0: You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
4: The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler, with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Stories to Keep You Up at Night, episode 14, features the infernal history of the Ivy Bridge twins. Part 1 by Molly Tanzer. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw. An executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Michael Coulter. Performed by Anna Clemens. Audio produced by Amanda Rose Smith and Spoken Realms. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Cutner. Cover art by Kindle Thomas. Find more shows like stories to keep you up at night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.